This episode is brought to you by Great Waters Financial. You can't internalize your life, you will always externalize it. That's Kevin DeVries, explorer, adventurer, and founder of Grace Explorations, on this episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bold Idea Podcast. We're so glad that you're a part of this show. And uh, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. We have another great episode teed up for you today to put your faith to work, to inspire you to bring out your bold ideas. Kevin DeVries joins us on this podcast. He is the founder and president of Grace Exploration. He himself is an explorer and adventurer. He's climbed five of the top seven mountains. He was the lead mountaineer in the award-winning documentary, Finding Noah. He has skied to the North Pole. He has bought and sold businesses. He has been an entrepreneur, a national men's ministry leader, a consultant for several faith-based nonprofit organizations around the country, and he's an inspiring speaker. So we welcome to the program... Kevin DeVries. It's great to be here. Oh, so glad to have you. You know, when we met, uh, I guess it was last year sometime, uh, you started telling me a bunch of crazy stories. And my immediate thought was, this guy has been through quite a few adventures. And I, I, you know, I remember sharing a few laughs with you about some of the things that you've gone through. But why not let, let's back up and let's just talk about what, what uh, was kind of the origin of your uh, life story here in terms of, you know, you got out on your own and and what's happened to you? Yeah, you know, uh, ADD. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, having that in the 80s before, you know, people understood what that was, I think uh, life has been very difficult for me to focus on. So there's always a lot of plates spinning. Um, However, in retrospect, now approaching uh, my 50th birthday here in the next couple of months, I have a little bit of, of retrospect here where I can begin to understand that I think part of the frantic effort to explore, to climb every mountain, to cross every stream, to ski to the North Pole and, and start businesses and sell them and all these different things, I think that a lot of the fuel behind that rocket ship, if, if you will, is uh, was trauma. Hmm. Talk about uh, that. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't realize that at the time because it actually has a numbing effect. So it gives you this 2,000-yard stare. Uh, the lights are on. Nobody's home. You're always fearing your future, uh, and you're punishing your past, but you're never now. You're never in the present moment. So a lot of the guys that I climbed mountains with or skied to the North Pole or were involved with in the business community were living at such a frantic pace uh, because in actuality, I think for many of them, I can't speak for all of them, but when I would look at them and look at myself, I'd be like, boy, it just seems like we're all running from something. It's, it's like we're trying to put this spatial element into our lives to somehow distance ourselves from uh, a failure, a moment of shame, a moment of abuse, uh, something that we are not proud of, that we would just as soon remain hidden. We are trying to go literally to the ends of the world, in my case, uh, what I didn't understand is that when you get to the end of yourself and you get to the end of the world, as you know it, y- you still find God there. It's mm. like everywhere you go, God is already there. And so in many ways, this idea of grace, which is transcendent of time and, and trauma lives inside time, when grace touches this trauma, uh, you actually find that you're where you were supposed to be in the first place. T.S. Eliot talked about that in some of his poems where you know, after all of all of our exploring, we will find ourselves in the same place as if for the first time. And I'm paraphrasing that, but it has this idea that things come full cycle. Um, and you find that when you reach the end of yourself, you find a new beginning in God that never ends. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my, uh, the engine that was driving me was primarily trauma, but I was much like a leper. I couldn't begin to comprehend that because I was numb to it which is really tragic uh, because the very thing that can heal you is incapable of healing you because you have to feel in order to heal. And so if you're running around like a leper uh, and you've got various portions of your story that you're disconnected from or that you're numb towards, uh, you have this inability to heal because there's no feeling. And you don't want to feel because feeling hurts too much. 
So just go climb a mountain, you know, go to the North Pole, start a business, start a relationship, find your favorite addiction, whatever it is, anything to numb or put some spatial element between the event that happened in your life that you just as soon forget, anything to keep you out of the now, anything to keep you outside the present. Kevin, help us, uh, if you're willing, you don't have to by any means, but help us step into that trauma that you dealt with. What was that like for you? What was the what was the event or what, what led to you having this trauma that you're talking about? Yeah, uh, I just did an interview actually this morning and uh, I, can, I can say it this way that uh, in February of 1998, uh, it's a longer story and it, it, it takes a, a bit to tell it. But essentially in February of 1998, I found myself preaching from a pulpit and watching my marriage and my ministry and my message and arguably my masculinity being destroyed and dismantled right in front of me while I was preaching in a church. Uh, it, there's a message entitled, and people can go to our website to find it, but it's called The Day the Devil Came to Church. And so it had a very surreal quality to it because I was the only one that was really seeing this happen, even though I was in a very large group of people. Uh, it kind of unfolded in the back row of the church while I'm preaching. And so it just, um, I had some people tell me that there was something going on with my uh, marriage at that time. And it was actually my first marriage. Uh, and I just didn't want to believe it. You know, I was going a million miles in ministry. I found that ministry was actually a great form of medication uh, because people actually applauded you as you were going 50 you know, million miles an hour doing great things for God. And in reality, it was just a way for me not to think about my own issues. I'd rather get involved in your issue rather than have anybody touch my issue because my issue hurt too much. So anyway, that thing exploded. I had people begging me to get into therapy and get into counseling. They said, you know, it's not normal for a preacher to get up on a Sunday morning and watch their, uh, you know, their wife connect with another person uh, in such a way that it's kind of obvious that something, you know, is happening. And so I, I just kind of blew it off. I did the Monty Python thing and just, that's ah, but a flesh wound, you know, yeah. I kept going. Yeah. Kevin, and, now I know something about this story cause you told it to me. Yeah. Uh, but our listeners may not be able to quite follow the thread of your conversation here. What did you see in the back row? Well, uh, essentially there was a seat while you were safe. preaching, right? Yeah. So I, it's halfway through the message. Ironically, I'm talking about Noah's Ark. Genesis chapter six, verse eight, and the verses before and after. And when you do the rendering of that verse and you unpack that, it gives the idea that God's heart was filled with so much pain that he could no longer speak. So it's the day that you pick up the phone and someone you love is now gone and you can't say the words you want to say. It's the day that you wake up in bed and the wife or the husband you had the night before is now a stranger and is telling you that they no longer love you or you know, you go to the doctor and, and you think it's a routine checkup and they're, you know, telling you you have X amount of days or months or years to live. So it's those moments where your breath is taken away. And as I'm uh, speaking this poetically and the, the, the remnant of the sky, the canopy of the sky is, is being ripped perhaps for the first time. And God is weeping his grief upon the earth and his heart is being broken in two. And he's, he's, the earth is being flooded poetically with his own tears, if you will. Uh, there's an empty seat in the back of the church. A gentleman is walking into uh, this scene halfway through the message, and the seat is being saved, you know, for him by a young lady. And uh, he sits down, puts his arm around uh, her chair, and they kind of come up closer. And you would think, gosh, they, you know, they really enjoy being around each other. They're dating or engaged or they're married. And the last part is true. She's married to me and, and the uh, individual is uh, one of our interns. So, um, you know, I had three guys telling me all the same thing leading up to this event. So I went into that service with a bit of foreboding. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a sense that something wasn't right, but I was still in a bit of shock. And so I still was living in denial. Um, and unfortunately, it was confirmed, you know, under the worst circumstances because a church, a sanctuary is supposed to be a safe place. And it felt like it was violated. It felt like a dragon had come in in mythic terms and just burned the gates down and, and just desecrated a sacred place. And, uh, as a result of that, I told the pastor at that time, I just says, I'll never preach from a pulpit again, ever. Mm. Um, 
it's like a soldier going back to a battlefield. You know, why would you want to do that? It's like a, a rape victim going back to the scene of a crime. Why would you want to go back to those places and see the same things and smell the same things and hear the same things? It's very uh, haunting to, uh, to have to do that. But in those haunted places, the holy hides. Mm-hmm. And we'll I don't understand how that works. So if you talk to people that have gone through trauma, I have a friend who was uh, a missionary to Brazil his daughter was raped uh, while he was serving as a missionary there, and he wanted to help this individual that committed this crime to exit the planet. And he had a plan to accomplish justice by his own strength, and that was thwarted, thankfully. Um, but his daughter told him during the course of that, um, the healing process of that, because he told her he was struggling. I mean, he's the father of this daughter. I have a daughter. I couldn't imagine what I would what thoughts uh, would would funnel through my mind if someone did that to my daughter? Um, and he said when he talked with her, she just shared with him, and this is quite astounding, and maybe for someone who's listening to this right now, I don't really tell the story. Actually, I've only maybe told it once or twice, but he said that when he talked with his daughter, she said, Dad, you don't understand. I never felt the presence of Jesus Christ as strong and as real as I did when this man was abusing me. So there's something about, you know, the cross of Christ where he's, you know, he's a man dying on the cross for the sins and the shame of humanity. Uh, Boy, on that on that sacred place, you know, the angels and demons are all there at once. Right. Uh, They mingle together and there's such a fine line between light and darkness. Uh, But in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that tragedy, God is there. And so. What happened to me to just synthesize a story a little bit further or to accelerate it, that was 1998. I went through 15 years of exile on the backside of a poetic desert, if you will, kind of like David had to go through 16 years of living in a cave, even though he was anointed as king, you know, by the Billy Graham of his day, the prophet Samuel. And he thought, wow, this is great. And then he didn't realize that, okay, the anointing is one thing, but the appointing is a whole other issue. And so he went on to a 16 year um, you know, existence from cave to cave, living as a fugitive. Joseph knew he was special. He had a special dream. He grew up in a special family. And it took uh, him literally 22 years before from the the time that he was thrown into the, the well by his brothers who first wanted to murder him until the time when he revealed himself to them. And he understood that in Genesis 45, that all of that was meant to happen. In fact, he told his brothers in Genesis 45, uh, something very powerful. He said, you guys, uh, you didn't send me to Egypt. And I can't even imagine how incredulous that must have sounded to them. Uh, dramatic pause, punctuation point. He follows up with, God did. Mm-hmm. Um, Moses, the same thing, special upbringing, special child, growing up in, a, in royalty and then commits a crime and hides in shame and, uh, you know, departs from you know, from that particular scene. So there's something about uh, what God has to do in the soul of a man and a woman, this maturation process, but it's a very delicate journey because in that sense of oblivion and isolation and running from your own destiny, if you will, you're very, very susceptible to um, this idea of feeling and sensing like God has betrayed you. Uh he, he didn't come into the story when he should have. If I was God, I wouldn't have uh, allowed this to happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's this direct sense of, man, I, if I were the author of this story, I wouldn't have written that chapter in there. I wouldn't have written February, that day in February of 1998. I wouldn't have done that. But God in his, in his majesty and his mystery allowed it to happen. It didn't originate from him, but he allowed it because he... He knew that there were elements in that day that needed to happen so that today could happen for me to talk to you two. Mm. I don't understand how that all works. I don't have the bandwidth to comprehend that. All I know is that at the end of the day, I think evil is essentially a dog on the leash of grace. And I think evil is, is a servant that God uses just like he uses good. And it's one of those things where, um, I, I don't have the bandwidth to know how to write that narrative, but what I do understand is that God can be trusted, and he's much like a surgeon 
where he uh, uses evil uh, as a blade. He hurts to heal. He never seeks to harm or destroy, but he puts us on an operating table and he allows these feelings and these memories to come back so that we can be healed. It'd be like arguing with a surgeon. Okay, I want you to make me better, but don't hurt me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've just limited your options right there. So we think we're in prison and all the pain that we feel is punitive. And what I think God is just saying is, no, you got your metaphors wrong. You're actually not a prisoner. You're not in prison. This is not punitive. You're not being punished. You are, in essence, uh, being healed. It's redemptive. I'm trying to bring about some uh, redemption in your life. So, um, you know, that takes a long time. I've been 15 years, you know, outside of that. I have two or three years now of doing public ministry again. I'm speaking everywhere. It really, really was difficult for me in the first uh, months to share the story, to get up in the pulpit again, because that's the last place I want to be. Uh, I'm just very appreciative of grace. Um, it's one of those elements where when I'm weak, God is strong. And I think that may be what he's trying to teach me is that, uh, even though the God of the universe has access to everything and everyone, uh, he, he needs one thing that we have that he doesn't have in order to accomplish his ultimate plan. And that's human weakness. Mm-hmm. There's something about a, a child being born in a barn as God incarnates himself into the flesh of humanity, there's something about that human weakness that's, that's a paradox that is encrypted against the plan of the enemy, but it somehow blossoms into something beautiful. It's the same paradox that we experience on the cross. You know, how can something so horrific and ugly be so beautiful in the end? And uh, I just think it's one of those things where you have to trust God with it, that it's, it's a mystery. So Kevin, what, what happened in this period of exile for you after all this occurred and the shock of it, the immediate shock wore off? What did you end up doing? You said earlier that you were you were running from now uh, and others you found that seemed to be running from now as well. What did that look like for you? Well, for me, uh, I just had to get super successful. I had to feel good about myself. I had to validate myself. So I tell people that if you can't internalize um, your life, you will always externalize it. So if you can't do 18 inches, if you can't get out of your head into your heart, because your heart hurts too much to live there. So if you live in your brain, I mean, the Egyptians even figured that out thousands of years ago when they would embalm, you know, individuals, especially their Kings and their royalty, they would just, you know, they disregard the brain, but they would take great pains to, uh, embalm the heart. I think they understood that that's where eternity resided, just like the book of Ecclesiastes speaks of. It's where the God DNA lives. It's the part of us that's immortal that goes on and on. And I think you can exchange heart and spirit for the same thing. Uh, the Bible, I think, uses both words to describe that uh, eternity that resides in us. So I basically was externalizing everything because I couldn't do 18 inches. I had to climb 18,000 feet. I had to go 18,000 miles. And I, I just couldn't find home. I could not find my home address. I couldn't find, I, I felt like I was a, you know, if you can go into the, the, the mythic landscape of Middle Earth, it was like I was a dwarf, you know, and I, I just, I couldn't find my way back to Erebor because there was a, a big giant, uh, actually in this case, a dragon of fear and shame and trauma that was sitting on all my gold. The harps were taken off the wall, just like Psalm 126 talks about where the Israelites are, are so, um, it, it's well, they said it's like we were like men who dreamed when they came back to Israel during the times of of uh, of Nehemiah and others. They they would take the the harps off the poplar trees by the stream, and the music and the mirth came back into their life. And so I felt in many ways like I was wandering. I was a stunted image of my former self. I was trying to get back to this mountain, just like the dwarves were in in the Hobbit to the Lonely Mountain to the Kingdom of Erebor to get back our long forgotten gold. And, and when I hear those songs, when I hear the dwarves singing those songs in, in uh, The Hobbit, it's like, man, this is just like trauma because it feels like on the day the dragon came, you know, the, the pines were roaring and and the the bells were ringing in the dale and the, and the faces of the men were pale. It just has this, this evocative image coming to your mind of, wow, yeah, that day in February 1998, it felt like the day of the dragon. It felt like he kicked me out of my own house. 
So for our listeners that may not be familiar with all your adventures, just uh, just run down the litany of all the things you did while you were in exile, because it's a long list. Yeah, so um, I started a couple companies and then sold them. One of them, I made a lot of money. The other, I lost everything. So I actually ended up going through, <laughs> I went from being a million net worth guy to living in a vehicle for a couple of years. So I have a, a tremendous amount of empathy for both parties. The, the guy who is living in his McMansion and who is hiding... <laughs> Uh, or not hiding. He could be living an authentic life. Uh, I don't connect wealth with being inauthentic or authentic. It's, it's just basically being able to own things without them owning you, which is a tricky deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy on the street could be hiding just as much as the guy in, in the McMansion it has nothing to do really with wealth. It has to do with authenticity. So I've, I've lived in all those extremes. It'd be nice to find something in the middle um, but I, I did a lot of that stuff. So business wise, I went through two marriages, uh, both great women and, um, I can't speak for them. Uh, they're the only ones that know what it was like to be married to them. But I can tell you this, that they probably were never as lonely as they were when they were married to me. Mm. And there's something very fraudulent about what I just stated to be married and to be lonely at the same time. Uh, one of the reasons why you get married is not to be lonely. So when you're lonely inside a marriage and you are, you have already divorced yourself from yourself because mm-hmm. of your own self-hatred and loathing and shame, you have no, uh, there's no unity. You're not bringing a whole person to the marital equation. You're bringing a divided person. So you've already divorced you from you. Mm-hmm. You don't even know who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can you be married to another person in a deep, significant way? And I've just described a ton of marriages out there mm-hmm. that are structurally intact, but there, there's no depth there. They're not doing life together. They're staying together for the kids or, or because they don't want to split the money, whatever it is, but there's nothing really meaningful that's going on there. And that's a very, very lonely place to live. Mm-hmm. So two marriages, a bankruptcy. Um, yeah, uh, climbed five of the seven summits, so the continental summits around the world. I skied to the North Pole, did a bunch of other climbing stuff, ran marathons, you know, you name it, just all kinds of extreme stuff. But at the end of the day, I hit bottom in uh, 2012, 2013, leading up to uh, climbing Mount Ararat. And in fact, I had spent five summers on uh, Mount Ararat in Turkey, helping a group of scientists try and, uh, figure out if there was any scientific documented evidence that, uh, the Ark of Noah actually exists or existed on top of Mount Ararat in Turkey. What was that like? Um, you know, mountaineering is kind of a, it's a, it's a marathon of suffering. It's, <laughs> uh, but unlike a marathon, you know, you can kind of just stop, right. And get some water, eat a banana, whatever you got to do to, you know, get rid of your lactic acids or whatever is cramping up or isn't working right. But mountaineering is one of those things where, you know, the only way you can get better is to go down. And unfortunately in mountaineering, especially what we were doing, we were digging at 16,800 feet. So it's 60% less oxygen. You're in a geopolitical, uh, point of friction there because you have a, a two warring factions, the PKK, which is a U.S. state uh, department-recognized terrorist group. It's a militarized uh, Kurdish group that's fighting the Turks, and they're doing a lot of killing in that area, you know, upwards of anywhere from twenty to 25,000 casualties over the last three and a half decades. So that and the whole mountain itself is a, is a beast. It feels like you're climbing on the back of a dragon you get to the top of the mountain, you can smell the sulfur, the rocks are moving depending on what time of the day it is, crevasses are opening and closing depending on what time of the day it is. So in the, in the storms are biblical, the electrical activity feels like one big giant beehive, you can hear it crackling in the hair, air, your hair is standing up straight. So to answer your question, it was, it was very, very difficult to do what we were doing. Sounds but surreal. I mean, know. it just sounds like something well, you'd, it's, you'd, it's you'd write on a on a, a a movie script for a foreign planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it's an old Cecil B. DeMille, you know, biblical era. I felt like Charlton Heston was going to appear at any time and crack the Ten Commandments over my head. I mean, it was just it felt like how in the world I felt like a like a hobbit in Middle Earth. You know, how in the world did I get into this story? It's just so crazy and off the chart. But um, you know, the tricky thing about climbing is so. Um, I've heard a lot of climbers say that the true base camp or the true summit rather is base camp. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for that because mountaineering is the only sport that I know of that celebrates at halftime. The summit is halftime, mm-hmm. 
but most climbers expend all their energy, like most men do, especially in their mid-40s. They've checked all the boxes. They've just literally blown through all kinds of stop signs. They're emotionally redlining. They're spiritually vacuous. Uh, there's nothing really going on there. They're just burnt out on all their ambitions. And they get to the point where they realize, oh, man, this is only halftime. i got to get off this mountain. And that's where most of the fatalities happen. So I tell people that not only are you not a prisoner – you're a patient. I also tell them you're also not a criminal. You're a climber. And what I mean by that is uh, when you climb Everest, and I hope to do that someday, they will take you up to the death zone and you will sleep that night in oxygen with oxygen and oxygen mask on. They'll keep you at one night at about 24 and a half, 25,000 feet. And then they will do something that's totally un-American or un-Western, if you will, for that matter. They'll take you all the way down to 12,500 feet. You'll go through the Kumbu Icefall, which is kind of a rolling of the dice as far as your survival is concerned. And they'll take you all the way down to 12,500 feet, not to punish you, not to uh, demotivate you, uh, but rather to allow you to heal because nothing heals in thin air. You've had a cut at 24,500 feet, it will not heal. You have something respiratory, cerebral, uh, pulmonary, anything that you have going wrong, your lack of appetite will not, there's not enough oxygen in the air in the death zone. Your body is actually eating itself. You're a fish out of water. You're approaching, you know, the cruising altitude of a 747. Nothing can heal in that thin air. So what we try to do with our ministry and what I try to do with my story and my life as a former, as an active climber rather, and as a spiritual guide, I try to tell people, look, sometimes you got to go down before you go up. In fact, going out is really going in. So flip everything in your normal narrative and realize that sometimes this descent needs to happen in your life. David needed to go all the way down to the bottom in a cave. Joseph needed to go all the way down to the bottom in a prison. Moses had to go all the way to the back end of the desert uh, because God had a very special, a very high mountain for them to climb. And the only way they were able to climb that to become a prophet, to become a king, to become a deliverer, was to, to go down further than it had ever been before because they were meant to climb higher than they had ever climbed before. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. I mean, by now our listeners know this episode is brought to them by our friends over at Great Waters Financial. That's right. Just so you guys know, when we say our friends, they really are our friends. One of the partners was even a groomsman in my wedding. So when we say we know them, we really do. These are men and women of character, men and women of integrity, men and women of faith. And I'm honored and proud, as is Larry, to have them as our sponsors. That's right. They have over $200 million in assets under management, and they serve clients all over. But one of the questions that keeps coming up is, how do I know if I have the right financial advisor? How do I choose a financial advisor? So they have prepared a very simple and free download for you to get and answer those questions, how to choose a financial advisor. It's just a terrific resource that they want to make available to you. Even if this helps you pick someone other than them, they're happy with that because they just want to add value to you. So just go to greatwatersfinancial.com forward slash bold idea. Again, greatwatersfinancial.com forward slash bold idea to get your free downloadable resource. Investment advisory services offered through Advisor Net Wealth Management. Great Waters Financial and Advisor Net Wealth Management are not affiliated. Insurance products provided by Great Waters Financial, a Minnesota insurance agency. Now, earlier you said on Mount Ararat, you hit your, well, did you use the word rock bottom there? But uh, that was that was the, the point where you stopped yeah. running? What, how, yeah. what was that like? How did God well, reach you there? That's a great point. So two weeks before I went there in 2013, when they filmed Finding Noah, and that became a movie that actually went in theaters nationwide in 2015, and now it's available for DVD on our website, uh, I had an encounter that only God could have set up. I was moving my stuff from a condo that I lived in back to my parents, which was humiliating. Here I am in my mid-40s, and I'm back to being 21 again. I don't own anything, <laughs> but I don't owe anybody anything either. I'm starting all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in one of those boxes was a cassette tape that my son jokes we found in the ark. It's an ancient relic that uh, millennials have no idea what it is. What is a cassette tape? <laughs> magical things that 
you know, you plug it into this device and sound comes out of it. So it, it must be, you know, something magical. So anyway, I found this tape. Guess what it was? It was, you know, the date in February, oh. uh, February 22nd, I believe, 1998. I plugged that tape in. I'm listening to it. I'm right back where I was, mm. you know, 15 some odd years later. And so it was God basically just saying, I need you to go backwards before you go forwards because your future always runs through your past. And so he took me back to that moment. As I'm listening to this tape, I'm having what psychologists would call an involuntary, a Proustian, it's named after Marcel Proust, a Proustian involuntary memory relapse, or you can just call it a flashback, whatever it is, a sight, sound, smell can bring you back to these moments. And I basically relived that moment. But in that moment, uh, God showed me a glimpse of what he saw that day that I was unable to see. So he essentially invited himself into my story and took me back in time because he's not bound by the time-space continuum. He can heal our past as well as heal our future and help us live in the present moment because he's not bound by the same quantum physics that you and I are. So he can walk through walls, but he can also shake your hand, which we know happened you know, during his post-resurrection periods in the New Testament. So he's not bound by the same time-space continuum that we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was able to take me back to that day, and he showed me where grace was. And instead of that empty chair, I saw a feminine form carved out of sunlight. It was an attribute of God that I was unfamiliar with, at least to that extent. And she poetically became personified to me to the extent that would parallel perhaps to what Solomon uh, did with wisdom in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, ended up calling her Lady Wisdom, and she has a house of seven pillars, and all the people that she invites into this home are saved, but across the street at the same crossroads in Proverbs 9 is the Dame of Folly, and she's like the whore of the underworld, uh, or witch, whatever word you want to apply there, and they're both um, equally as inviting, and they both have homes, but to enter one as compared to the other is essentially life and death. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, it, and then all these other maidens were personified, all these other attributes of God, faith, hope, and love. And so they have a part of this story. And so I'm asking her who she is, and she's, uh, I'm, I, I want to know her name. And she's like, well, I'll tell you my name when you know your name. And I was like, well, my name's Kevin DeVries. And she said, well, that's the name your parents gave you. But when you know the name God gave you, I'll tell you my name. And I said, well, tell me your story. And she said, well, to do that, I have to go back before time because – We know from the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy that this construct or this idea of grace began before time, that God already had this idea of grace in his mind before time even began, before uh, time was was material and eternity was the only thing that existed. So she takes me back. It's about 2,000 pages worth of material. I wrote for 500 days. It just kind of bled itself out. Um, I felt like I was basically a narrator to a story, Mm -hmm. just kind of a fly on the wall. And so that's a whole other issue of itself. But to answer your question, so when I got to the mountain in 2013, I had this experience. And then to couple that, I had a bunch of uh, special ops guys, uh, an army ranger and a Navy SEAL, uh, essentially tell me that, look, you got what we got. And I was like, well, what's that? I thought it was arc fever. And they said, no, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And I thought, well, that's just for combat guys. And they're like, no, I said, well, how do you know that? And they said the same thing I said earlier in this interview. They said, well, when we look at you, you've got this 2,000-yard stare, <laughs> and, and the lights are on, but nobody's home. And when you talk, you're always talking about something ahead of you in the future, or you're beating yourself up over your past, mm-hmm. but you're never now. Mm-hmm. So then my journey began into uh, heavy therapy. Actually, it started even prior to that. So I'm really big on the four streams of healing. Whenever I look at my life, I always try to make sure I'm involved in some type of church community. I'm also involved in a community maybe outside the church, a band of brothers that meet somewhere else. I am also uh, very curious and very uh, deliberate about being involved in some type of therapy or counseling or pastoral counsel. And then I'm also making a beeline towards contemplation where I have an audience of one and I'm just like Job. I have a whole bunch of questions that are not good questions, so they're actually unanswerable, and God has to basically give me the gift of himself as uh, his unquestionable self to all of my unanswerable questions. And when he answers me with himself, which is really the only two options we have when we suffer, we either get answers, which we typically don't, and then we become we feel betrayed because God didn't give us answers to our big questions, or we can, I think, just allow God to be God 
and allow him to answer us in our suffering and our sense of betrayal with himself. And I think for Job, the great character of suffering in the Old Testament, I think that when God revealed himself to Job in those final chapters after this long litany of conversations, uh, all of his friends were gone. Um, nobody was left except him and Almighty God. And I think when God answered himself and said to Job, you know, were you there when I spung the planets like, you know, ornaments on a Christmas tree? Or were you there when I separated light from darkness or land from sea? I think it humbled uh, Job to the extent where he realized that, you know what, um, I don't understand everything. Yeah. And it's meant to be that way. Yeah. So talk about how, you know, so this was God speaking to you and, you know, getting you aware of yourself, right? So what did, what did you do then? I mean, how did, how did that transform your thinking about what you do? Because before that time, it sounds like you became aware that what you were doing was running from what has happened to you, that your traumatic response was to engage in all of these adventurous activities. How did you then move into a healthy way to embrace new ideas? Well, uh, here's what I did. I, uh, I played dead, uh, kind of like an opossum. So I realized that a lot of my trauma, a lot of my angst, a lot of my inability to move on was centered around the idea that I felt like Lazarus. I felt like God showed up too late. Mm. I was praying for God to reconcile my marriage. It didn't happen. I was praying God to restore my business. It didn't happen. I tied my way into bankruptcy of all things, but that's a whole other story. I think he actually had to offend my mind in order to open up my heart, which is what the cross does. It offends your mind. It doesn't make any sense, but it opens up your heart at the same time. It's a paradox. So here's what happened. Uh, you know, God basically showed up when he wanted to, which was perfectly on time. For me, I thought he was late, but I think what he was saying to me was, okay, you're Lazarus. You don't really have any faith to see anything happen because you're dead. I'm the only one in this situation that has the faith to really see you through the other end of this thing. And he said, you were focused and obsessed with this altar of a perfect family, a perfect life. You were worshiping whatever it was that you thought was uh, uh, the life that I should have given you. And you made an idol out of that. And so you forfeited grace, just like Jonah in the belly of the whale. You were making idols of your perfect life. I had to smash those things with holy hands because you didn't have the strength to do that. I had to put you in an operating table. I had to wound you twice in the same area. You had to be divorced twice in order to be healed once and for all. And I did that all. And I showed up late according to your timetable because I didn't have a whole lot of interest in reconciling you to some of these issues or relationships. My greatest goal, my highest form of redemption for you has been and always will be a resurrection. So we have trouble with death, right? Everybody runs from mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. We spend billions and billions of dollars keeping people alive for a few years longer. Why? Because we don't want to die. And, and in essence, what God is saying is you got this death thing all wrong. It's just a door to another uh, dimension. And, and Lewis had it right. C.S. Lewis, he always talked about learning the art of dying before you die so that you know how to truly live. And so I think what God did for me to answer your question is I think he just brought me to a place where I was Lazarus. And I had to hear him call me out of the grave, almost like Aragorn did with all these other characters in Middle Earth. I had to hear my new name being called from the other side of this rock. And somehow by hearing those words, this tomb that I was in, that I saw no way out and quite frankly had plans to exit the planet and even tried and was unsuccessful, I finally heard his voice calling me out of the wilderness like a lion in Narnia, if you will. I heard his roar. The winter of my soul was, was shattered. All these frozen, leprous, unfeeling parts of me suddenly surged with life. And I experienced the resurrection, blood, and power of Jesus Christ. And the humbling part of it was I had spent my whole life chasing the sun. I was even in the travel industry. I put people on cruise ships. I put people on airplanes so they could chase the sun, right? Mm -hmm. For the first time in my life, as a middle-aged man, I finally had the courage and the wisdom to understand that the quickest point of light is not chasing the sun. It's standing still and letting the dawn come to you. Mm. And the last I checked, the only one that can bring the dawn is God. Mm -hmm. We have no scientific ability to bring the sun into existence. And so I stayed in my grave. I heard his voice. My tomb became a womb. I literally became born again 
And I feel like in many ways, when people talk about the guy they once knew, I, I, I mean, I know who that guy was because I was in his skin, but I feel so resurrected that, um, I don't know, it, it literally, I feel like I've come back from the dead. Wow. That's powerful. I spit out of a belly of a whale. Now, here's the trick. Jonah, even though he went through all that, that circuitous chain of events, which is emblematic of Christ in the tomb, and it's why he spoke of, you know, as is Jonah, I will be, you know, in the belly of, of the earth as he was in the whale. There's something about God's sovereignty. This is crazy. It goes back to that T.S. Eliot poem, you know, that after all of our explorations and all of our discoveries, we end up in the first place as end up in the same place as if for the first time there's something about Jonah's story and something about my story where even though he was disobedient, even though he was running from God, just like I was, and in his case, he was in the belly of the whale, uh, he still ended up being in the right place at the right time with the right people. He was spit up on the same shore that he should have sailed to. Mm. That's God. I don't know how to write that script. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Now it's you crazy. Now you have a ministry that uh, you, you've been given uh, called Grace Explorations. Now, if you had to describe to our listeners, like what's the one kind of meta story, meta message that you give uh, as, as a result of that ministry in your life, what would that be? Well, our tagline is the greatest journey is within. Mm-hmm. So I don't care where you're going or who you think you are or what names or labels you attach to yourself. The greatest journey is always within. And you will discover that wherever you go, God already is there, mm-hmm. period. That's great. And that's a bold idea. What, what would you think God is stirring up inside of you for your next bold idea? Um, just to live a, le- a resurrected life and to realize that um, raising the dead is something that God specializes in. So I feel like in many ways what my calling is now is to call people out of the shadows, call them by their true names, uh, and and be a partner in this process of of raising the dead back to life, of waking people up from their slumber of shame, of 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 allowing people to find their hearts again. Because when you find your heart, which is what I did after searching for the arc of history, I actually found the arc of my story, and the arc of my story was leading me to the fact that I was climbing Agrida, which is uh, translated as the mountain of pain. This, this mountain that I was climbing for all these years, those five summers, was actually called the painful mountain when you translated <laughs> Agrida. So what I was, I was climbing into my destiny. Every foot that I uh, dug into the ice looking for the ark, every foot I climbed onto the mountain, I was actually getting closer and closer to who I once was. And so the ark represented to me my heart suspended, frozen in awe, uh, oh. living on top of a lonely mountain and God was slowly but surely melting that ice. So feeling was coming back and I was able to find the ark, which in my case was my, was my heart. Wow. How ironic. Now let's punctuate your story and we have to draw it to a close. What was the name that God gave you? Well, there were many, um, and it's not something that I would consider to be actually biblical. It's almost more of a brave heart type of thing, but uh, warrior poet is is the name that keeps popping up, and I have a special connection with King David. He was both a warrior and he also was a poet. I do a lot of writing. I think in symbols and images, and so yeah. I think in many ways a, a warrior poet is is who I was born to be, and could only become through great adversity. Yeah, I can see that in you, Kevin, and you tell your story powerfully, and and, and just want to pray for you and your ministry that it goes far and wide and touches people who are who are themselves running from God. If our listeners want to get a hold of you, um, how do they learn about you? Yes, uh, go to graceexplorations.com. Um, that's plural with an S, and it's exactly how it sounds, graceexplorations, plural with an S.com. There's uh, a contact form there. They can get a hold of us. We do a bunch of uh, ministry events that they may want to be a part of that will bless them. Oh, that's great. And um, we'll have that link in our show notes as well. Kevin, thanks so much for being taking the time to be with us on the program. Uh, love the story. You've qu- quite a background, and I'm sure it will be an encouragement to our listeners. It's my privilege to share with you today. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, that was Master Adventurer Kevin DeVries. Master Adventurer, I like it. And <laughs> Master of Authenticity. Yeah, I tell you, he, um, he really dove deep very quickly. Yeah. 
I mean, I think he's the first guest on our program that says, let's not waste any time. <laughs> let you know all the crap that's gone on. Yeah. I mean, that's a rare treat though, you know, for someone who is willing to just be so open about misfortunes in life and all the things that they've gone through because more often than not, that's a shaming process, but he was shameful in the most audacious way possible. And I think that's what is, uh, I don't know. It's the formula to get people to actually listen to you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we have talked a lot about vulnerability in the past and it's always comforting or really refreshing to have somebody really let us in on his story. And certainly that was, uh, that was true of him. Anything in particular stand out for you? Uh, no, I'm actually curious uh, what, what was for you, because I know there was a part there that you were taking some serious notes. Well, I really just enjoyed the the idea that wherever we go, you know, God is there. And oftentimes we, we really just kind of think about this idea of abandonment and betrayal and that God is not with us on a journey. And, you know, we certainly have gone through that personally in our lives where, you know, we've been praying for a long time for Joshua's healing, you know, my son. And there's just been this sense of, you know, why are you not answering that? And I really identified when he said, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't allow this to happen. You know, and I think it's so easy for all of us to see things in our own life that just don't feel like it squares up with a loving God allowing that to happen to me. Right. You know, and um, I just thought that the journey that he went through was was really really good and if you know he he said one thing i thought was really good if you can't internalize it your life uh you'll externalize it Mm -hmm. and that's really what he was living it out so that whole sense of you know if you can't get uh peace if you can't get a sense of god's love for you his unconditional love for you regardless of the circumstances you're going to try to find that in an external form of some kind. You're going to try to get validation from someone else. You're going to try to get other people to like you. You're going to try to get other people to think of you in a certain way. Mm. When you don't have it internally, when you're lacking it on the inside, you try to project it on the outside. Right. Because you're hoping that no one realizes how broken you are. And I think that may be something of what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, first clean the inside of the cup. Mm. And then the outside will be you know, clean as well. And that there's a sense of when we're healed on the inside that we really do make more authentic and more grounded people on the outside. Right. And I I think to that point, there's a, there's a little quote that he said that I really thought was super catchy and very on point. He said, your future runs through your past. Yes. And uh, being someone who's got very severe uh, PTSD and has gone through all that kind of stuff myself. uh, If there's anything I learned from that process of, trying to heal uh, from the trauma as probably one of the truest statements I've ever heard. Because um, I typically talk about it in darkness and light mm-hmm. metaphors. Right? Mm-hmm. You kind of have to uh, dive deep into the darkness before you can really see the light. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think his line is way better that, you know, your, your future runs through your past because it really, really does. Cause you, 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 all you're going to do is constantly try to outrun your past. Yeah by looking into the future. Yeah. And he certainly is a guy that did a lot of running. Yeah. I did. I did not. (laughs) (laughs) I've climbed no mountains and planned not to. (laughs) You You just, you just did your running in different ways, right? From cops. (laughs) (laughs) You kept it at street level. (laughs) (laughs) I never even ran from cops, but I hid from them very well. (laughs) You, You know, when I met Kevin for the first time, I think he was telling me about some of his mountaineering adventures and he did tell, he did tell me, Uh, The same thing that he he said here, which is, and I just love this thought and just, it really applies to us in so many ways. Nothing heals in thin air. And yet Mm -hmm. we keep pushing ourselves to climb higher and higher and faster. And it isn't until Mm -hmm. we come down off the mountain and get into, you know, the right kind of air, do we get the healing? You know, we can't keep pushing and trying to climb the summits all the time of our life. And really for many of us who um, are motivated, who are driven, who are wanting to pursue our bold idea or wanting to give it all the push, we might find that we're running out of air Mm. and uh, we need to take time to regress a little bit. We need to take time to come down off the mountain. Yeah. And just take a breath. (laughs) Yeah. Take a breath. But there's more than just the time of taking a rest and deacclimating in the mountain. What I like too about what I heard from Kevin 
is that he put together a structure to support him. Now, notice he lived a life that was pretty much going from here to there and all the rest. And I would say pretty unstructured in sense of the adventure was what drove him. He said he wasn't living in the now he was. And as he's noticing people, they're all running from something. Right. Mm. And I would say that that's a fairly structureless life. But what I heard him describe is that he is now very conscious of, of staying in a state of healing. Mm. Uh, and that that state of healing involves four uh, four things. He says the four streams of healing. Mm. It was a church community that he's a part of, a band of brothers that he's a part of, a a pastoral or therapy counseling situation that he's a part of. And I would add to that just having advisors that can speak into your life. Right. They don't necessarily need to be uh, a counselor or a therapist, but somebody that's willing to speak truth into you at a one-on-one level mm. is kind of how I see that. And the last one is contemplation. And having that one-on-one time with God where we are um, with the audience of one, as he described it. I just thought having that, those four streams of healing, having a church, a bond of brothers, a a counselor that you, or advisor or therapist, and then the idea of that audience of one, I just thought that was really huge to say, I want my life to be centered around having input from these four types of people, four streams, as he calls them. Yeah, that's spot on. I don't even know if I'd add anything to that, but that's been very much my healing process too, ironically. Two guys who don't really know each other and I would, if I had to break it down or structure it, those are the things I would actually put in place as well or yeah. have put in place. Yeah. So when you're in the midst of trauma, like Kevin was, it's very easy to go on these misadventures, I think. And, uh, and I think that's what he would say in his life is that he's gone through all these misadventures only to f- find out that God resurrected him from this state of needing to be dead. He couldn't solve it himself and he yeah. just needed to come to terms with that. And maybe that's inspiring to you in terms of where you are. Maybe you're finding that all the frenetic energy you have has just been to avoid something. If it is, then take a deep dive. Take a look at what's driving you on the inside because as he said, if you can't internalize uh, your life, you're going to externalize it. And uh, that's a really great question for every bold idea person to be thinking about. If we want to live out the thing that God is calling us to, we want to put our faith to work. We need to have that kind of energy, knowing what's inside and finding grace there to accept all the things that have happened in our lives and not to go on these misadventures, but to find healing. So I think that's the takeaway. It's right on. I love it. Well, we hope that you love this episode as well and would love to get your comments on the show. Find the show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash 45. You can leave a comment for us there. You can find the links to Kevin DeVries' websites and all the other things that he has going on, including the Finding Noah movie that he was uh, the uh, lead explorer for. And uh, we'd love to also get your comments on our show line at 612-568-IDEA or 612-568-4332. Well, this is all that we have for this week. And uh, until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Saying so long. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.